You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice uh, to the Lord, their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabedniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur to the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all his people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commended to them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You, have, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. 
Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Hesbarn, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued them before the subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with the kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, your prophets who had warned them rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned out and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned with stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, prophets, yet they would not give an ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our king's our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, amid your great goodness that you gave them, And in the large and rich land you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we were slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of God. Y'all can clap. It's okay. You should clap for that reading. And I recognize, like, it's, it's a long chapter, and it's a long time to sit through that. But I also just want to recognize this. Like, how much of our, like, attention 
is given to sort of passive intake through either a screen or through scrolling to where sitting for an extended period of time and, and uh, being read, sit, and have the simple act of God's word read. And so even if it's difficult, we should embrace it. It says the people in this story read for a quarter of the day. So that's quite a while that they sat and listened to God's word. Uh, certainly we can sit for, I don't know, quarter of an hour or however long uh, that, that, that reading was. Uh, I'll just warn you this morning, coming out of COVID, I'm gonna be a, a little more tied to my notes than usual. Uh, I'm, I'm still not all mentally there, which if you know me, I already operate at, at a deficit. And so uh, uh, I'm gonna be a little more focused on, on the notes this morning. But let's, let's pray and, and just invite God to speak to us through, through his word. Lord, here the people of Israel are. Their, their walls have been rebuilt. They're, they're coming back together. And yet they're under the influence of a foreign nation that is... Um, controlling and even oppressing them. And what they just want is for you to change the circumstances in their lives when in fact what you want to do with them and what you wanna do with us is not so much change the circumstances of our lives, you wanna change us. You wanna change us. So Lord, would we have the, the eyes to see our need this morning more than or whatever marriage or our job or who's elected, or whatever external circumstances in our life that's difficult for us, God, would you change us through the preaching of your word and through the declaration of what your son has come to do? Would you help me now? Amen. Amen. Nation of Israel. Now, why would they take time to review all of this history, like hundreds of years of history? What, why would they do that? Some might say, like your history teacher, well, you know, those who don't study history are what, bound to repeat it. Maybe that's a reason why they considered the history of their nation. Uh, another reason why they might want to consider the history of their nation is because here they are coming back together out of exile, and they need to form a national identity, and having a shared history helps draw people together. Maybe, maybe that's a, a reason why. There are aspects of, you know, in, a, in the next chapter, they're going to establish a covenant with God. And in uh, ancient history, when different parties or nations would establish covenants with one another, they would often do a prologue of history of how they had interacted before they entered into a covenant. These are all reasons why uh, the people of God might have wanted to review this history of Israel. I want us to review Israel's history this morning just just for this simple reason. Here's the reason why we're gonna look at this long historical chapter. I want us to review Israel's history so that you and I can simply stand in awe of God's unrelenting love for us in the midst of our unrelenting sin. I want us to stand in awe at God's unrelenting love for us, his people, in the midst of our unrelenting sin. What does unrelenting mean? Unrelenting means not yielding in strength, severity, or determination. When it comes to us in our sin, we are unyielding in strength, severity, and determination. And yet somehow, for some reason that we will never comprehend, God is 
un, uh, unyielding in his strength, severity, and determination in his love for us as his people. And so really what this passage reminds me of is the like logical question of what happens when a immovable object encounters an unstoppable force. Um, the immovable object in this passage over hundreds of years for Israel seems to be their heart's steadfastness in sin. And yet the unstoppable force seems to be God's love that keeps on loving them, keeps on pursuing them, even as they harden their hearts against him. God continues to stop them with a unstoppable, unfaithful love. And the reason we need to stand in awe of God's love this morning is this. I prayed it briefly earlier, but help me with my job problem. Help me to figure out uh, how I can be a better parent, something practical like that. But for 98% of you in this room, the problem in your life is not needing to learn new information. For so many of us, our knowledge has surpassed our obedience. We know the right thing. The problem is our motivation, our desire, uh, the, the fuel that it takes us to actually walk in obedience. And the place where your life is changed by God is the meeting place when you recognize the depth of your sin and wickedness and yet also the depth of God's unrelenting love for you. Your life is changed in the encounter between your undeservedness and yet God's love for you regardless of it. And so this morning, what I wanna simply do is just walk through this history uh, and, and make some little stops and reflections along the way so that we might stand in awe of God's love for us even as we're unfaithful to him. And so let, let's look at this, keep your Bibles open. The first section here, the first five verses are, are uh, a description once again of worship. worship. As they've completed the wall and come back together, they now regularly devote themselves to worship. And then they begin this history, uh, and, and I wanna break it up in sections. And so verses six through 15 are basically a, just hundreds of years of, of, of uh, a recounting of God's generosity, God's kindness, God's unstopping goodness to his people. And what it begins here with is describing him as both creator and Lord. Both creator and Lord. So uh, here in verse six, it, it describes him as both. And this may be characterized as deism. Deism recognizes that there is some sort of creator that put this whole thing together but what he did is he kind of wound it up like a clockmaker, set it in motion, and then stepped back and is now disengaged from the creation that, that he had made. That's, that's deism, simply a wind. See here in this passage, first of all, is God as creator. Verse six, you made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them. That is not only God's creation, but his lordship, his involvement in his creation. So he made everything, but it says that he sustains it. He's involved in it. He hasn't stepped back and remained disengaged. And he involves himself in, in a number of different ways in this passage. One, through creating and sustaining everything in the universe. But what we also see him doing is engaging in his creation relationally. 
Verses seven through eight describe uh, God involving himself by entering into a relationship known as a covenant through one man, Abraham. He called Abraham, promised to give him the land of Israel, to multiply his offspring, and that he would become a great nation. And he was going to have a special relationship with this nation among all the nations on the face of the earth. So God involves himself as Lord through sustaining creation, through entering into relationships with people, and then perhaps most importantly this morning, God involves himself as Lord through salvation or redemption. In verses 9 through 11, it describes how the people of Israel became enslaved to Pharaoh, helpless, oppressed, living in a misery that none of us could ever fully understand. But with a great show of God's glory, he delivers them, brings them through the Red Sea to safety. And he doesn't stop there by just delivering them and bringing them to safety. He now enters into a relationship with them that could be described as like a, a shepherd with his sheep, providing for their every need. He leads them through the wilderness in verse 12, uh, but with a cloud and laws to show them how to live. Sometimes that is controlling or trying to stop us from doing uh, what we want to do, taking away freedom for us. But God is saying in this passage, his rules are right and good, even a gift to us. Not mindless rules to control our lives, but his law is like an owner's manual showing, here's how human life works. Here's how humans flourish uh, as they walk in their design. So he gives them these right rules and laws. And then in verse 15, it describes how God provides for their daily needs, manna from heaven, water from the rock. And so here's what we've seen so far from God in this, just several verses in this history. We see him creating everything. Everything we have is a gift to us from our creator. We see him entering into relationships with people called covenants. Uh, when those people are stuck and trapped and oppressed, we see him delivering and redeeming people and then involving himself in their lives through providing for them, leading them, meeting their every need. So these first descriptions of God's interaction with his creation is nothing but a description of God's generosity and kindness, and love to his people. Now read with me verse 16 to understand how it is they respond. After all of that, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. To act presumptuously is to step outside the border that God has designed. And then it says that they, that they stiffened their neck. Sometimes new parents will ask me, because you're in this transition period with a baby, of when is it that, when will I know when my baby just doesn't know and when they're actively rebelling? Like, when does that transition happen? I have a very simple answer for you. All you need to know is the car seat. Uh, when that baby stiffens that back, uh, when, when they're trying to be put in their car seat. That's the first act of rebellion that many of us have experienced. That little tiny baby that can almost not even lift its head will somehow have like the strength of a grown human being keeping itself from being held in this car seat. Now let me help you understand naturally what your disposition towards God's law is, God's word, his instruction for your life. Naturally to us, it is not a gift that we enjoy. It's like that car seat restricting and holding down uh, and forcing us to do something that we don't naturally want to do. 
That's what our sin, our, our rebellion against God is like, and then using to obey. Some people say, can we naturally just obey God's law uh, on our own without God helping us? And uh, one theologian describes it this, like this, we cannot do it because we will not do it. We refuse it. We, we, we have this natural rejection of God's law. And then it goes on to describe, or, or uh, uh, we can think about our, our, our disobedience to God's law like this. Because we treat it like a two-year-old in a car seat, we, we respond to God's law in one of two ways. We respond to it irreligiously, which basically just says, forget that, reject it, God's plan for sexuality, money, my time, my worship, reject it outright and just do what I want. That's one way we respond. Or the other way we respond to God's law is religiously, where we say, okay, basically I'm going to obey God's law, but I'm going to do it as a means to an end. So sort of like the older brother in the prodigal son story, hey, I'm gonna stay here and obey and even go to church and do the right thing, but I'm doing it not because I love you and, and because I trust in you, but so that I get something in return. One, one way you might see this kind of disobedience to God's law show up is like this. You'll have someone say, man, I've been walking obediently to God. I've been going to church. I've been doing all the right things, and yet life still isn't working out for me. What's the use of being a Christian? Right in that word, the use of being a Christian reveals the heart. You're not doing this because you love God. You're not doing this because you trust him. You're doing it because you think it will be useful for the natural human heart response to God's law, either outright rejecting it or doing it as a means to an end when what it should look like is saying, God, I love you and I trust that you love me. So when you give me a command, you're not keeping something from me. You're giving me a gift so I simply wanna obey it because I love you. And so that is how the people of God respond. And yet, shockingly, we see an expression of God's unrelenting love here in verses 19 through 21. Even though they rejected his law, even though they made the golden calf and took the love and worship that was owed to him and gave it to idols, even though they said, hey, we would rather go back to Egypt than be your people, here's how God responds in verse 19 through 21. Yet in you, you and your great your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way and did not depart from them. Uh, the pillar of fire by night uh, to light the way for them for, for which they should go. You gave them good, your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold uh, your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So even though they reject God, even though they rebel against his command, God continues in his great mercy to show love to them. Uh, moving on to the next section in verses 22 through 25 are descriptions of God's once again generosity to the people when they inherit the promised land. It describes how uh, they went in and possessed the land, that he subdued the inhabitants of the land uh, of the Canaanites and gave it into their hands and that they were able to receive cities uh, and rich land they took possessions of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. Uh, so they ate and were filled and became, continues to give and to give and to give. So surely by now the people would respond in right worship to him. Verse 26, nevertheless, 
they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast their law, your law behind their back and killed your prophets. I want you to observe the contrast here between God not forsaking his people at their worst moment and at the very best moment when the people have everything, it says they cast, they forsook God's law behind their back. Over and over again, when they uh, offend God and rebel against him, he refuses uh, to take their love from them. He will not forsake them. And yet, as soon as things are going well for the people of Israel, here they are forsaking his law once again, remaining in their unrelenting sin. So God judges them again. God sends his enemies to, to judge them for their sin, and yet over and over again, God delivers them when they cry out for mercy, only to see this pattern happen on repeat, century after century. It says in verse 30 through 31, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So this pattern we see happening in this passage on repeat over and over again. And the first section takes really about 40 years when, when God was dealing with his people in the wilderness, when they were uh, wandering through the wilderness and receiving the promised land. But this next section zooms out a bit and it actually goes over almost the entirety of your Old Testament. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the same pattern. God saves and delivers his people, gives them good gifts. They turn their back on God, are judged by their enemies, and then when they cry out for mercy, God delivers them. Whether it be the book of Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and parts of the Old Testament, this is the same pattern that happens over and over again. And what I just simply want you to observe is the long-suffering and the patience of God for his people. Many of us will maybe enter into a toxic friendship or relationship with someone, will endure for days, months, maybe even years. We are talking about centuries, centuries that God endures faithfully, steadfastly with his people, even though they are unrelenting in their rebellion against him. Which brings us, I'm just fast forwarding now, to sort of the modern day of the people in, ne in Nehemiah's day, right, where, where they find themselves now. What happens in verse 32 is sort of a transition from talking about this pattern uh, that we've been going over that had happened many centuries before to then in verse uh, 32 through 38, essentially what they're doing is laying a request before the Lord. What they're saying is this, even though they had come out of Persia, out of exile, they were still oppressed by the Persians. Uh, they had foreign occupation, foreign nations living in their land. Uh, they were taxed at exorbitant rates, which is a form of slavery in and of itself, and were struggling to get by. And so what, what this, the point of this passage, what they're hoping happens here in this passage is, God, all these times in the past, you've saved and delivered us from our enemies. Will you do it again? Will you deliver us from the Persians? That's their hope. God, we are asking you one more time, please deliver us from our enemies. Verse 36, behold, we are slaves this day, so not history, this day, in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy, its fruits and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. 
They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So God, will you deliver us one more time? What will God do to that request? Will he deliver them yet again? Will he send prophets to direct them out of captivity yet again? Will he conquer Israel's enemies one more time? Well, this, because as the Old Testament ends, different nations, uh, the Greeks, different nations come through and same thing, occupy Israel all the way up to Jesus' day when the Romans are in charge. If any of you have ever seen the TV show, The Chosen, you get a good perspective of what it was like to live under Roman rule, high taxation, uh, occupation from, from, from a foreign land. So all of that is going on for hundreds of years, and we've heard about how God delivered everyone previously, but this time, God does nothing. He doesn't send a prophet to save them. He, he doesn't deliver them from their enemies. So I guess we could ask the question, has God's patience with his people finally run out? Has Israel finally come to the end of God's faithful love? Is he now done delivering them? Well, in a sense, he is done from delivering them from their enemies. But his love has still not run out because as we turn from the pages of the Old Testament to the New, we see Jesus stepping on the scene. And this time through sending Jesus, what God is gonna do is provide a salvation, an expression of his love, much more powerful, much more transformative, and much deeper than anything he had done before. Because brothers and sisters, listen, so often we, just like the people of Israel, just want God to change the external circumstances of our lives. They're saying, God, change these oppressive enemies that are out here. We say, God, change my job, change my marriage, change my addiction, change my loneliness, change who's in charge of the government. When God is saying, this time, I'm not changing your circumstances through sending Jesus, this time, I'm changing you. Of years, can't we see that the enemies are not the problem? After all of your struggles and problems in your life, can't we now see that the problem is not our external circumstances? What God did in sending his son is not deliver from external circumstances or behavior. He changes us from the inside. He changes us at the very core of our being. So what I wanna do in closing is just look at the deliverance now that was provided by Jesus sort of in three areas of his life that was different from all the types of deliverance that God had provided before. How does Jesus' coming change us? Well, I wanna look at three areas, his life, his death, and his resurrection. First of all, let's look at how his life changes us. What does the 33 years that Jesus did have to do with our salvation. Some of us rightly understand, hey, sin had to be paid for, so he, he died on the cross, but why did he have to wait 33 years to do it? Couldn't he have just gotten it out of the way earlier and been done with this whole thing? Well, here's what we have to understand. The 33 years of Jesus's life is just as critical to your salvation as the six hours that he spent on the cross paying for your sin, and it's critical in this way. In order for us to have a right relationship with God, we have to keep his law. 
That is the one prerequisite for the people in this passage. Obey his word, keep his law. And that's the issue over, over, over and over again. No, no matter how many times they experience the pain of rejecting God's law, they keep disobeying it over and over again. So why do the gospel writers show us Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? Because where Israel failed in the wilderness to keep God's law, Jesus kept it perfectly. Why do the gospel writers slow down and show us Jesus' obedience in the garden of Gethsemane up against the temptation of turning away uh, from the cross? Well, because where Adam failed to obey God in a garden, Jesus succeeds and obeys God perfectly, even under the worst circumstances. Jesus lives as our representative. He, He is obedient in all of the areas where we are disobedient. He fulfills the law of God perfectly on our behalf as our representative. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And then it goes on to describe what we get to do as a result. What do we get to do? Because Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And, And because he's our representative, what does that mean that we get to do? We get to draw near to God forever. Even when we fail in sin in our lives, even when we act wickedly in our lives, because Jesus, our representative, lived perfectly, we draw near to God as perfect people. His perfect life is given to us as a gift so that we are accounted righteous before God. That's what Jesus' life has to do with our salvation. Now, how about his death? He says regularly, things like the Son of Man came to give his life. What, what is the giving of his life? Well, what happens when the people reject God? He hands them over to their enemies and they experience God's wrath through their hands. They experience God's wrath through the people's enemies. Now, I recognize that for many of us as modern people, we struggle with the idea of God having wrath or judgment And that's not actually so much a problem with our Bible as much of it is as a problem with our experience. Listen to me. In order for you to have a problem with God's wrath, or because if you were to go to a different place in this world where there's not as established of of a government, not as just of, 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 of laws and things like that, the problem is not with God's judgment or wrath. The problem was God, with God's forgiveness. So for example, if your life, if you're living in Afghanistan and your life has been absolutely shattered by a terrorist organization like the Taliban, you don't have a problem with God's wrath and judgment. You are, you are waiting and longing for God to bring justice to the earth. You have a problem with God's forgiveness and grace. And so uh, for us as, as, as modern people, the problem isn't so much with God's wrath, but with our experiences. We just haven't tasted evil like the rest of the world has. But when God looks at the totality of our lives and he sees our sin, he can do nothing but respond with right and good judgment. But this is the astounding part. Jesus, on the cross, takes the wrath owed to his people and then owed more specifically to you in your place. Uh, c- consider, consider the song. So, so um, one of my favorite hymns. This hymn changed my life in Christ alone. It's one of the first hymns I got into when I became a believer. The, the uh, Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, didn't like the song. They wanted to change one word. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They they wanted to change the words to that. 
The problem is for me as a sinful human being, I don't need God's love magnified. I think he loves me perfectly fine. What I need as a sinful human being is, is God's wrath against me satisfied. So, so the writer of the hymn was right when they said, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God against my sin was satisfied on the cross of Jesus for every sin on him was laid. So here me as a human being in the death of Christ, I live, I live. Jesus died on the cross under God's wrath for my sin. Uh, Jesus was handed over to his enemies. They were handed over to the Persians and the Assyrians and so on. Jesus was handed over to the Romans that he might feel the full weight of God's wrath against our sin but he did it for us. Finally, let's consider the resurrection of Christ. What does that have to do with our salvation? On the third day, Sunday morning, the lifeless body of Jesus was resurrected. Amen? The lifeless body of Jesus was resurrected, and this showed, of course, his victory over death. It showed that the price of sin had been fully paid, but it gives us access to something profound in our lives right now. When we are saved by Jesus, we experience right here, right now, a mini resurrection of our own. And then in the future, we will have a full bodily resurrection, but it begins with a mini resurrection. Uh, theologians call it things like regeneration or the new birth. It's when God takes our sinful heart, that heart that outright rejects God's law, or will only obey it for personal benefit. And he gives us a new heart, a heart that loves God in his law, a heart that no longer sees God's law as an obligation or restrictions forced upon us, but sees it as a good gift uh, from a good God who loves us. So in the same way, when Jesus was raised from the grave to a new life, when we put our faith in him, the spirit of God gives us a new heart, a resurrected heart that no longer is opposed to God and his law, but delights in it and enjoys it. And this is how you can tell you've become a Christian. Not that you are perfect by any means, but your desire, your will, your heart has been so transformed uh, that um, you now enjoy doing God's word. The, the, the hymn writer, I'll, I'll share one more hymn with you, puts it perfectly. This is how he describes it. To see the law fulfilled by Christ, to hear his pardoning voice, turns a slave into a child, and get this, and duty into hearts have come alive. But last part, it turns duty into choice. When our hearts have come alive by believing the gospel, what was once dutiful, an obligation, and forced upon us is now a free choice. He turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. For the one who has experienced Jesus' resurrection personally, it turns the duty of God's law into delightful choice. So in closing, I know I've got to wrap it up. Back to Nehemiah. Is God giving up on his people? Will he deliver them from their enemies? No, he's not giving up on his people, but he's not delivering his enemies. He's doing, delivering them from their enemies. He's doing something much deeper. In Jesus, he fulfills the law on our behalf. He takes the penalty for our sins upon himself and he gives us a new heart through the resurre resurrection that both loves God and his law. So let me ask you this question, every single person in this room. 
Have you experienced Jesus's perfect life given to you as a gift? Have you allowed him to take the penalty for your sins on the cross? Have you experienced this new heart through the resurrection of Jesus that now loves God by turning his law? You can this morning. You can experience all of that by turning from your sins and trusting him. If you've not come to a place in your life where you've trusted in the salvation that Jesus offers, please don't come forward and take communion. If you're ready to believe, you can sing with us and celebrate with us, and you should actually be baptized before you come forward and take communion. Anything practical for you today other than to stand amazed at God's unrelenting love, not just in general for his people, God's unrelenting love for you, even in the midst of your unrelenting sin. Stand amazed at the salvation that he has offered through his son that is so much more profound, so much more transformative than anything that happened in the Old Testament. And do it, begin doing it by taking communion. Let me read what Jesus says at the end of his life in Luke chapter 22. It says that he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. God, would you now help us as your people to stand amazed at your unrelenting love for us in the midst of our unrelenting sin? Would we stand amazed at the price that it took? I mean, previously we read about the deliverance and the provision and all of the things that you did for your people of old, but look at us here. You didn't give us uh, deliverance from Egypt. Um, you, you, you didn't give us a, a law uh, to, to, to keep in order to, to stand in right relationship with you. You didn't even give us manna or water from a rock. You gave us your own son to truly redeem us, to not change our circumstances, but to change us. God, would we be changed by you this morning as we behold your great salvation through communion and through the songs we sing in Jesus' name, amen.